0: I want to say good morning to everybody that's joining us via the live stream on Facebook. Uh, Welcome. Thank you for joining us in that way. It is always good uh, to be able to utilize technology to to better connect us, and so if you're not able to be here this morning, or if you're one of those folks that watches from maybe a little farther away, uh, we're glad to have you with us. And I want to thank Larry and Anthony again for for, uh, preaching the last two Sundays. If you were here, I'm quite certain that you were challenged by both of those messages, and it also gave me an opportunity to better prepare to begin this series. And I've really been looking forward to this since we decided this is the route we wanted to take going into Easter. There's a a struggle sometimes around Easter and Christmas to say, we tell the same stories, we make the same points every single year at this time, and so let's take a slightly different look. And so that's how we got to this point. And of all the parts of Jesus' life on this earth that people love to read about, love to hear about. I think His miracles rank right up there, near the top. I mean, miracles are so cool, right? Now, opinions differ on how many miracles of Jesus uh, are, are recorded in Scripture because different people have different opinions about what actually constituted a miracle and, on top of that, what miracles could be attributed directly to Jesus For instance, was the virgin birth of Jesus Christ a miracle of Jesus? Well, it was miraculous, and Jesus was certainly involved, and he is fully God, so I suppose it was, but I would understand if somebody only wanted to include a a list of miracles that the walking and talking on this earth Jesus himself carried out. And so, if you go by that, we can say that there were around 40 different miracles of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And I think we can also safely assume that Jesus performed many more miracles than those that are recorded in Scripture as well. In fact, at the very end of John's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 30, we read this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. And so if there were more than John recorded in his Gospel, it's safe to assume that there were more than were recorded in any book. And if you've been around church, you may be like me. I have always enjoyed a new look, a fresh look at one of Jesus' miracles. A new and fresh look at Jesus turning water into wine or another look at one of the men who Jesus gave sight to that had been blind or a fresh look at the healing of those suffering from leprosy. We tend to enjoy hearing about and even studying these miracles of Jesus because they're so amazing. But how do we really feel about miracles in general. What do we really believe about miracles? Do we believe these miracles recorded in scripture actually happened? Do we believe miracles can happen today? The answer may be different depending on who you ask. And in his book, The Wonder-Working God, Jared Wilson says this. He says, some some scientists tell us that the things we often call miracles are statistical aberrations in the natural order of things. Random outliers in the overworld. Normal flow of everyday events. Most say that what we label a miracle is simply an illusion, a trick on the eye, a misperception misattributed. Every event has a perfectly natural explanation, they say. We simply don't have all the data needed to explain what we've perceived. There are then rational explanations for every unexplained event, and the supernatural by presupposition cannot be one of them. You see, there are a lot of people that would try to say, There is an explanation, we just don't know what it is. There is an explanation, we just don't have all the information, we just don't have all the data. There is a logical and non-supernatural explanation for everything that happens. There are people that believe that. And some of us, maybe even a lot of us, have allowed that thinking to affect us a little bit, to enter our minds a little bit, and in some cases, it has altered our beliefs about the miraculous. And what has happened for a lot of us is that it's not that we don't believe that the miracles happen, but for a lot of us, miracles have moved from the, the realm of the supernatural to the realm of the inspirational. And, and we don't necessarily say that they weren't supernatural things that happened, but rather than focus on that, we say that was a really good story. It inspired me. It drove me to action. And we, even if we don't say it, Begin to kind of minimize the importance of the supernatural aspect of miracles. These stories inspire us, but sometimes that's about it. And we maybe discount the fact that these are real things that happen. We may still believe in the validity of the miracles of Jesus, but for a lot of us, they've lost some of their luster because of how we feel about miracles and their potential today. And and I think some of it may be a result of the fact that we don't see a lot of what we would call miracles of the level of what Jesus was performing in the New Testament Gospels. And so we read about them, and it feels like, well, that was a long time ago. Those were different times, and that was Jesus. And so we don't, even looking back on them, they've lost some of that luster. Now, for those who don't believe in the validity of miracles of Jesus, those who don't believe maybe that Jesus even was who he said he was or did what he did based on what we read in scripture, those folks may view miracles a little bit differently even yet. Many would doubt the possibility of miracles today, but might say something like, I don't believe in God, but a miracle, an undeniable miracle could change that for me. They might say, I don't believe, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I have no desire to even talk about it, but, man, if I saw a miracle, and there was no doubt in my mind that it was a miracle, and there was no doubt in my mind that it came from God, I would have to change that statement, and I would believe. And we might judge somebody for having that attitude, well, you know, don't, don't put God to the test. And we might point to scriptures and say, well, well, here, here's a bunch of miracles, let me show them to you but we probably shouldn't be too hard on them because I would think for most of us, even if we do already believe in God, a miracle, an undeniable miracle in front of us would strengthen that belief. And in that, we're not that different from the folks who don't believe. We just have a different starting point. Unbelief for them, belief for us, but either way, a miracle would serve to strengthen belief. But I want to make this clear right up front as we begin this series. Miracles that we read about in Scripture, miracles in the Old Testament, miracles of Jesus, miracles later performed by His disciples, and even the ones not recorded. Their primary function was never about proving God existed. Certainly that was a result in some cases, but these miracles were more about God showing Himself and His miraculous power than about proving His own existence. And it is an important distinction we need to understand between God proving who He is, which is a response to humanity's need to be convinced, and God showing who He is, God's choice to reveal Himself through miracles. I'm going to keep coming back to Jared Wilson on this because he has so much good to say about it, but he posed this question, and I want you to consider it. He asked this, he said, What if the miracles of the Bible and miracles today, should they still occur? What if they are not God trying to convince us he's up there somewhere, looming out there in heaven and trying on earth to get us to acknowledge him, but are actually God showing us that he is right here and right now in charge? See, we're naturally impressed by miracles because they're supernatural, because they're against the known order. They're often outside the bounds of human reason. But we need to set aside how impressed we are And see that miracles are a beautiful window into understanding more about who God is. And when he sent Jesus to walk this earth, what a window it was into into who God is. And of all the miracles of Jesus, and of all the miracles we read about in the rest of Scripture, the most impactful, the ones that, yes, are most impressive, but also tell us the most about God, are when someone was raised from the dead dead. To life. People then and people now will try to explain away the miraculous. And sometimes they're pretty convincing. Do some research on this and you'll be surprised. There are some people that have some pretty strong theories uh, or some pretty strong explanations as to how Jesus turning water into wine was was a trick. Or even how some of the the blind received sight. There are some theories out there that those guys weren't actually blind, that they just had something physical on their eyes, and when Jesus put the mud on it, all he really did was remove it, and there's all these different theories. Do a little research on that. Now, you'll fall down the rabbit hole, trust me. But, but there are a lot of theories out there. Some of them make some sense. But it's difficult, if not impossible, to explain away someone being raised to life. Now, they'll still try. There's no doubt at the time of these stories we're going to study that people did try to explain it away, but I have to believe it's a lot easier to explain away the water into wine than to explain away the returning to life of one who was clearly dead. And so over the next four weeks as we move toward Easter, we're going to study the four times in the Gospels that someone was raised to life. We'll begin today with the widow's son. Week we'll look at the story of Jairus' daughter, then we'll dive into probably the most well-known of those that Jesus raised, the story of Lazarus. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, we'll look at Jesus himself, his death and his resurrection. But what's interesting about the first three of these stories, three stories where Jesus intervened and raised someone to life, is that Jesus' involvement and subsequent miracle comes at a different time related to the death. Lazarus had been dead and buried for several days. When Jesus raised him from the dead, Jairus' daughter was still in the bed where she had passed just a few hours earlier. And the widow's son was somewhere in the middle, on his way to being laid to rest. And his story is one that is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Now, to put it in context, this is within what we would consider to be the ministry of Jesus. He's traveling with his disciples from place to place, teaching and healing. He's becoming very well known. And the crowd traveling with him that's following him from place to place is growing daily. In Luke chapter 6, beginning of verse 17. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. And there were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. These miracles, these healings, they spoke to who Jesus was, because he was doing things that only could be considered supernatural. And as he went about doing them, he was giving God the glory. He was giving God the credit, and therefore, he was what he was really doing was declaring himself. Fully God, even when he didn't say those words. And his miracles often brought people uh, to him, but his teachings then would keep them, and as a result, this crowd was growing like crazy. A chapter later in Luke, we read about Jesus healing the servant of a Roman officer. Based on that Roman officer's faith, in fact, I love that story, we don't have time to go too deep into it, but the Roman officer, he comes to Jesus, and he basically tells him, Jesus, I don't even believe that you need to come to my house. I don't believe you need to put your hands on my servant. I don't need any of that. I believe you can heal him right here and right now. And Jesus heals him, sight unseen. An amazing miracle that would soon be followed by another, as we read in chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, so right after this happened, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Now before we talk about what Jesus actually did here, I want us to talk for just a moment about this widow and her son. Because we don't really know a lot about them, other than their home clearly being in or around the village of Nain. But we do understand that their life has probably not been very easy. We don't know the circumstances, but this woman uh, had lost her husband at some point. And her son, at that point, whatever his age, essentially became responsible for his mother. Culturally, that's how it worked. And now, for whatever reason, due to whatever cause, now this woman has experienced a double loss with the passing of her only son. She is essentially alone. She essentially has nothing. Now one thing I I find very interesting is that there are two large crowds here. There is a crowd that's following Jesus and there's a crowd that's following the funeral procession. And so I would put it this way, there's a crowd that's following Jesus and therefore they're following life. And there's a crowd that's following a funeral. They're following death. And these two crowds... They meet up. And, and you got to understand, we're probably talking about two very different crowds because the crowd that's following Jesus is, is waiting for Jesus to do something awesome. They're expecting him to stop and teach or to heal somebody on the way by. The crowd that's following death, they're weeping and they're wailing. And there was a lot of that that went on. We'll get into a little bit of that next week. But the life and death in these two crowds came together. And what ended up happening is that ultimately both crowds ended up being present for something Amazing. The passage tells us that Jesus' heart overflowed with compassion. Something we read about specifically in six or so of his miracles recorded in Scripture, but it's something I believe we see in all of them. And I don't want us to miss the importance of that word compassion. Webster's Dictionary defines compassion as sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. And see, we've got to understand that. Sometimes we think compassion is simply feeling for someone. But the truth is, that, that important piece is together with a desire to alleviate it. It's not just feeling compassion for someone. It, 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 there is action. There is a response involved. If you can do something, you do something. There's sometimes a temptation to see that, yes, Jesus wants to alleviate that distress and will do so, but that because He's Jesus, because He's fully God, He may not truly understand Our distress. But I love the way the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus, our high priest, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. It's important that we understand that Jesus understands our weaknesses. He understood this widow's distress, he understood her mourning in this situation. The word that we end up with as compassion there, Jesus felt compassion for her, is the Greek word splanchnizomai. That's the worst I've said it. Splanchnizomai. I said it so much better in the first two services. Splanchnizomai. And splanchnizomai, in the original Greek, that was a phrase that meant his heart went out to her. Now we use that terminology, right? We say my heart went out to him. And what it means is, I feel or I felt your pain. Jesus felt her pain. I've actually heard this referred to as gut-moving compassion. That it wasn't just a, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, but he felt physical pain along with her. I think it's important that we understand that Jesus didn't just care because he was supposed to care. He didn't care because that's what people expected or because of the crowd around him. He felt this woman's pain in a way that produced in him a truly compassionate response. You see, sometimes God feels so distant to us. Sometimes he feels cold to us. And we have these moments where it just seems like there is no possible way that he can understand what we're going through, that there is no possible way he can understand all that life is throwing at us. There is no way he could possibly understand just how much we are hurting. But I believe in stories like this is a reminder a lot of us need that God does understand. And the incarnate God in the person of Jesus Christ walked this earth and experienced the things we experience. And I know that things weren't exactly the same in that world as they are here today. But he is a God of compassion, and his heart goes out to us in our hurt. He is with us in our hurt, and we can be confident of that. Not only that, but he responds to our hurt. Not always the way we want him to, not always the way we may ask him to, but according to his will, we serve a God of compassion. And we see that in Jesus here again as we read in Luke chapter 7, repeating verse 13 through 15, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. The young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, I will tell you, it was a bold statement for Jesus to tell this woman to stop crying. I struggle with this sometimes with my kids when something happens to make them cry. Sometimes I'm a little too quick to say, ah, oh, don't cry. Not in like a compassionate way, mourning, but I think you're being kind of ridiculous right now. Stop crying. I'm just being honest with you. I know it's not nice. Because usually I feel like they're overreacting, or it wasn't that big of a deal, and so I'm quick to say that. I'm not trying to be mean, but sometimes I feel like they'd realize it's not as bad as they think if they would stop crying long enough to figure that out. But, but what Jesus was doing here is he was essentially telling a woman who had lost her husband and who had now lost her only son to stop mourning. But then he does the one thing that could justify making that suggestion, making that statement. He touches the coffin, he speaks to the young man to get up, and the boy does. And in a moment where hope had been completely lost for this woman, I mean, she had nothing. In a moment where hope had been completely lost, Jesus returns hope and life and so much more to her, even as he doesn't just raise him from the dead, but presents him back to his mother alive and well. It's an amazing story. I think it's a great story. It is the first time we read of Jesus raising someone to life, raising someone from the dead. And the question becomes, why? What was the purpose? Why, why this boy? Why now? And is there something we can learn from it? Well, I don't want to overlook the obvious, that that Jesus raised this boy from the dead as a response to and an expression of his own compassion, that he felt compassion and therefore he acted. I don't know that this story, this amazing story of life being returned to one who had lost it, I don't know if it needs a greater explanation than that. Because it's obvious that compassion was at the heart of Jesus' words and actions here. He felt this woman's pain and so he acted. But I want to point something pretty cool out. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, there are whispers and words that point to Jesus. You know, it's one thing to open Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and those, that's the story of Jesus' life. But you go back to the Old Testament, and you sometimes read these phrases and whole chapters that you know in the moment they're really not about Jesus, but you also know, you know what, I think this is about Jesus, these whispers, And these words that point to a coming Messiah, that Jesus would eventually come. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's a lot more obvious, but Jesus, His eventual coming, His life, His death, His resurrection, they're spoken of throughout the Old Testament. And at this point in history, when Jesus raises this young man from the dead, many of those references in the Old Testament to Jesus had been fulfilled in Jesus as he walked this earth. The Old Testament told us Jesus would be born of a virgin. The Old Testament told us much about Jesus' birth, and that had been fulfilled when he was born. But it's likely that there were some who did not credit Jesus' power to the right places at this point in his life or maybe even believed that Jesus was simply acting on God's authority, but wasn't actually God himself. That he was a prophet who acted at God's direction, which is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And so what I want us to see is how we can connect this story, this young man raised to life by Jesus, back to something recorded in the Old Testament. In the time of the prophet Elijah, And in the time of a great drought that was affecting everyone, there was a widow who lived at Zarephath. And God sent Elijah to this widow, and he told him that he, God, had instructed her to feed Elijah. And so Elijah went and asked the woman for bread and water. The truth, however, was that she had no bread and only a small amount of flour and oil to make bread with. Even if she had been able to make it, it wouldn't have been enough for her and her son, let alone extra for Elijah. And she even told Elijah, she said, this is where we're at. My son and I are preparing to die. The drought was in full effect. They were almost out of food. They were preparing for inevitable death. But Elijah told her that God would provide for her and for her son, and that even if she fed Elijah in addition to them, God would make sure that there was always flour and always oil left in the jars until the rains came and the crops were able to come back and the drought would be over. And so that's what she did. She trusted what Elijah said, and she fed Elijah, she fed her son, she fed herself, and they actually ate for several days. And every time she made bread, there was always oil and there was always flour left in the jars. Now, I think that's pretty cool anyway. But then we read this in 1 Kings chapter 17. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. A widow losing a son, it sounds familiar already, doesn't it? Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die?" And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. And so God's power was on display through his prophet Elijah. God spoke through him and God acted through him. But make no mistake, it was God at work, not Elijah. That's why we see all that Elijah does and hear all that he said, stretching over the child three times and crying out to God in prayer. He's calling on God to come and save this boy. And then all these generations later, Jesus raises another widow's son from the dead, but he does so with simply the touch of a coffin and the simple words, get up. And I love what Pastor Fred Craddock says about this. When he he talks about all the times that someone was raised from the dead, as recorded in the Old Testament, that, that every time it was God working through someone else, here's what he says. He says, this pattern comes to its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ, the great prophet who heals not merely through delegated authority from God, but on his own authority, without rituals or prayers, but with a simple word of power. He was the great God and Savior of Israel in the flesh. See, Elijah healed through delegated authority, but Jesus was God in the flesh. And in this miracle, this young man raised to life, we realized, and those who were present to see it happen, had to have realized, if we have any doubts about whether this Jesus was just a good teacher, or just a prophet, or just a magician, or any other number of questions people were probably holding on to then, many of those same questions that people hold on to now, those questions were answered when with the touch of a hand, or to the coffin, and a word, Jesus raised this young man To life. Generations had heard and had read about the coming Messiah, one who would save, one who would be fully God, even as he walked this earth fully man. And he was there, and his power, his divine power, was on display in this moment. And as we move towards Easter, as we look at each of these stories, I want to make sure we don't miss some of the things about Jesus. Some of the things that we can learn about God through, through these actions of Jesus. And this one, I, wanted, I, would, I would point out compassion. You know, we've said a lot about compassion because it was so important to, to what Jesus did here. He felt for this woman, but I also want to point out his promised power. That, that they had been waiting for a Messiah that, that didn't just call on the name of the Lord, but had God's power in them because they were fully God. And we can sit back at a distance and we can admire the compassion of Jesus and say, man, that's inspiring. And we can sit back and admire the power of God and say, man, it's so cool that in the Old Testament it said this this king would come with power and here it is, it's Jesus. Man, it's awesome that he arrived on the scene at that point. We can sit back and we can admire it. But the truth is the Jesus we follow, the God we serve, the spirit that guides us all in one has that same compassion and that same power to be utilized in our lives. You need compassion? God has compassion for you. He feels your pain. He's with you in your struggles. You need God's power? It's available. You got something you're not sure you can do on your own? God's with you. Sometimes we read these old stories and we convince ourselves that they are just history, that they are just part of the past. But the Jesus who raised the son of the widow of Nain from the dead on the way to his very own burial is the same Jesus who offers us new life through his sacrifice. See, we can read and study these stories and say, wow, isn't Jesus powerful? Isn't God awesome? Or we can read and study these stories and allow them to draw us closer to Jesus. As we approach Easter, whatever is going on in your life, good or bad, whatever your relationship with Jesus looks like right now, healthy or unhealthy, growing or stagnant, allow these stories of Jesus who raised the dead to draw you closer to him. Because here's what we need to understand and remember about Jesus he is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And when we say life there, we're talking about life beyond this life. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about heaven. Jesus is the way to eternal life. He described Himself that way because that's who He is. But He also said, I am the resurrection and the life. The source of both of those things, the only true source of both of those things. Resurrection and eternal life are only available through Jesus Christ by God's power. Which takes me back to this picture of the two crowds coming together, the crowd that was following life and the crowd that was following death. The truth is, life meets death every single day. And if this is all there is in the picture for us, when our life meets death, death will win. Death wins, unless Jesus is in the picture. If Jesus is in the picture, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, if we accepted Him as such, if we're following Him, if we're believers, death will win, but only for a few minutes depending on how you view that. There's a lot of different theories on that. Death wins, but it's temporary. Death wins, but that's not the end. We're all going to have a situation where death wins in our life, but if Jesus is our Savior, we don't have to fear that. Because we know that ultimately, death doesn't win because Jesus won the victory, a victory he offers to us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you today. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, when death meets life, death will win. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. But you're still breathing, so it's not too late to realize that Jesus, who went to the cross for you, who died for you, wants to be your Savior and the Lord of your life. And you can make that decision today to follow Him. And in that, Death will no longer have a chance at victory in your life because you'll have Jesus' victory.